here, but I think I'm going to come down here so I can get closer to these guys. I'm going to keep my eye on you guys. Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice seeing all of you. Twenty-seven and a half years ago, I stood down here, and my bride came walking down. Is anyone here in 89? Few people were. Few people were. So some of you were. So 1989, we got married. I've been coming to this church since 87. I was only 26 years old, I think. So that's when I met Beth. And I'm with Life and Messiah, L-I-F-E, Life and Messiah, since 1990. So we were in Israel for three years altogether, but a year and a half to do, to do uh, outreach, to start a congregation near Tel Aviv in a city called Joppa. Remember Joppa in the Bible? Uh, so I, uh, remember Jonah? Jonah went there first, Yafo. They say Yafo in Hebrew. But. So we were, in, we were in that area starting a congregation because there was a quarter million people in that area, no congregation. Kind of hard to imagine if you take a quarter million people here, how many churches would be in a quarter million people in this area? I don't know idea, but it would be quite a few. So we went there at that time to start uh, a ministry. So we were in Israel for a year and a half doing that. We got denied. We were forced out of the country. Long story. I won't get into that. But then we came to New Jersey. There's a lot of Jewish people here. So we lived in Philadelphia for uh, 13 and a half years. And then we've been in Toronto for eight and a half. Now, we had told Dad, uh, you, there's Dad here. Raise your hand, Dad. <laughs> so we had told Dad, uh, told Dad years ago that it would, be our, it would be our privilege to care for him when he needed it. So it's getting to that time. So we have a blast again, don't we, Dad? We have a great time together. So we're really looking forward to moving here next spring, maybe late spring, early summer, not sure exactly when. So you can pray for us as we move. And we're really looking forward to uh, fellowshipping here, enjoying your company, sitting under Pastor Key's sermons. We can't wait to, to hear and learn from him. And so we're excited about that. And uh, also, we were in Philadelphia. We were going to Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia for a while. And a pastor called me up and said, there's a Jewish young man who's here who wants to speak with somebody, not a believer. And that was Steve. So raise your hand, Steve. Now, this is Donna, his wife, and then Molly. Where did Molly go? She's over there. Okay, so Molly is here. She's 11. She's actually 11 and three quarters because when you're young, don't you do that? They're not 11. They're... Now, when you're old like me, 55, you don't say I'm 55 and a quarter because you don't want to be older, but you, you, when you're younger, you want to be older. So Molly has been praying for us. The whole family's been praying for us, but Molly's 11. She'll be 12 on January 5th. But she's been praying for us since she was a little, right, guys? And so it's great to have these prayer warriors. So January 10th, 2002, almost 15 years ago, is when the Calvary Chapel Philly pastor called me up and said, would you, would you speak to this uh, Jewish uh, young man? Sure, great. So we were 100 yards from the church. So he came over. I, have my, I looked at my appointment book. At 9 o'clock, he came over. And it's interesting that he became a believer that day. The Lord touched his heart, opened his heart, and he did it through me sharing with him Isaiah 53. Now, we use that as a start-off point. Now, we're going to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch and what was he reading when Philip ran up to his chariot. Anyone know? Isaiah 53. So we'll talk about that later on. So we spoke about Isaiah 53. 
And I think just like Philip did, and like Jesus did when he spoke to the two men walking through Emmaus, remember that point? He just came up and was sharing with them. He used that as a start-off point, but then he went to other passages. So we went to other passages, and the Lord used that to open Steve's heart. And now Steve is here, and he's enjoying this with all of us. That was back uh, almost 15 years ago, so praise the Lord for that. So we want to thank you for partnering with us. Uh, some people you know, use the word support, but really that's like a one-way thing. I like to use partnering because this is a two-way street. We help you, you help us. We're doing this together as a group to reach uh, Jewish people. And so you've been uh, partnering with us financially and pray, praying with us since November 1990. Now, some of you young people weren't even born yet, were you? So that was almost 26 years ago next month. We want to thank you so much for that, and thank you so much to the leadership for inviting us to come today. We, it's a privilege to be here. And uh, so let's look at uh, Acts. We're going to do a little bit of uh, overview of the section. Now, we're going to look at 8, chapter 8. And Pastor Keith, you're doing Acts, right? Where are you at now? Just Oh, you just start. You're starting. Okay, you're starting. So, uh, intro. Okay, that's great. So the book of Acts. Well, eventually, maybe next spring. I don't know. He'll be in chapter eight. So we're going to look at 26 of 40, but we're going to not going to do overview of the whole book. We're going to go back and just do a little overview. So chapter six, first schism in the church. What was that about? Well, you see that in chapter six. And what happened, we're going to call this the Church's Benevolence Fund. I can't even say it, Benevolence Fund. Uh, They weren't able to administer the Church's Benevolence Fund and commit themselves to the study and teaching of the Word at the same time. So that multitasking wasn't working very well. People were being ignored. So what happened then is they appointed a group of seven men who who appear to function as deacons. And you see them. So this is the first appointment of non-apostolic church officers. And then we have in 6-7 this little uh, uh, progress report. Or in Canada we say progress report, but I come down here. We, when we reach the border, I go from progress to progress. And I go from schedule to, from schedule, to schedule. I have to change my vocabulary. Uh, so they were uh, the, the, these church officers appointed. Now... Look at who these people were. So, verse 5, who did they choose? Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also, who who do you see there? Now, so we're going to see Philip in chapter 8. So this is Philip. So right away you have a little bit of these guys' character. Their character was a very high-level character. They respected, probably implied that he was full of the Holy Spirit as well. And then you have Stephen's speech in Stephen's ministry. He's the first Christian martyr. In fact, normally Jesus is seated, isn't he? Isn't Jesus normally seated at God's right hand? But you remember in chapter 7 when Stephen is being stoned? What's Jesus doing? Anybody remember? He's standing. Interesting. So it could have been, I think he's going to give him a hug. I think he was hugging the first Christian martyr. We're not sure. But he, in honor, probably staying in honor of the first Christian martyr. So he had this uh, a speech from 6.8 through 8.1. And uh, he starts performing miracles and preaching. 
And you see that if you go back to 6, 9, and 10, before we look at 7, 6, 9, and 10, you have him debating, don't you? You see that? Look at verse 10. Could they debate with him? No. Because who does he have on his side? Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about that when I get into a lot of practical applications of witnessing, that we have the Holy Spirit on our side. You know, we're bathing everything in the Holy Spirit. We should be walking in the Spirit when we're witnessing. That's the key to everything. It's not how smart all of us we think we are and how, how well we know the Bible. Really, the whole thing is the Spirit. And that's why he was unstoppable in his debates. So these opponents arrested him and brought him before the Sanhedrin on false charges. There was a little bit of truth to what he said, but that's 6, 11 to 15. Now the high priest, probably Caiaphas, demanded that Stephen reply to these charges in 7.1. And then he is a long, look at his response. Not a few words, is it? It starts at 7.2 all the way to 53. Now, do you see them, if you read this, and he's defending the gospel, he's announcing that the Jews were under judgment. Now, they were probably nodding their heads. It's interesting, Stephen. Good job. I, mean, I like the way you're rehearsing history. But they came to a point when they didn't really appreciate what he was saying. When was that point? Well, when he got to, uh, like, in other words, they were agreeing with what he said, but they weren't really sure where he was going in his argument. They weren't clear about that yet. But when he got to verse 51, to see what, they, uh, what happened in 51, when they started to realize what, what his point was, what did he say to them? Now, this, let's just say this guy was not a politician. You hear a lot of politicians right now, don't you, speaking. Stephen, not a politician. He's just saying to people what, what, they, what they need to hear. They don't want to hear it. He's telling the truth. They were, weren't they? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Now, how do they respond to that? Do they say, thank you so much for that, and we really appreciate you um, telling us the truth, and Lord, Lord bless you, and what do they do? They needed a dentist after you see in 54. Because why? They were furious. When people are gnashing their teeth at you, you're in a little bit of a trouble. So that's what happened. They were gnashing teeth at him, and he was stoned, and then he was with Jesus immediately. Now, we have this uh, persecution, don't we? So in chapter 8, verse 1, see the persecution there? Anyone see any positive things to this persecution? What was it? What? Gospel spread. So there are some very positive things that the Lord does Persecution, no one really wants that, but the Lord does a lot of interesting things. He separates the wheat from the chaff, he, the, no, the tares, wheat from the tares, separates the people that are true believers from those that are not. If someone came in right now and they said, okay, here's your choice. We either shoot, if you're a believer, we're going to shoot all of you. Now, this might be disturbing to some people here, but this happens. This, go, go to the voice of the martyrs, you'll see this all the time. We either, if you're a believer, you have a choice now. You have one minute, one minute to recant your faith, deny that Jesus is Lord, he's God, he died, rose again, he's fully God, fully man. Deny all that, and we won't shoot you. Get it? 
This is the context of the book of Revelation. The people that received the book of Revelation, they were, they were going through this. You either worship Caesar or you're dead. So the ones that say they're believers and really are not, you have one minute if you're not a believer. If you're not a believer, you have one minute to leave. So that very quickly separates the true believers from those that aren't. And the gospel spread, as we heard a little bit ago. So then, what did anyone know Acts 1.8? Anyone had that verse memorized? Anyone has a good Awana verse to memorize? And some of you might have memorized this verse before. What does it say? Anyone can just... Uh, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so it happens now in chapter 8. You see the Peter and John traveling from Jerusalem to Samaria. Now it's getting out. And the Lord is using persecution to spread his word, and to, which the Lord is very good at uh, bringing good out of bad, doesn't he? Satan is probably pretty happy about the persecution, but God, like he does over and over again, he's going to bring good things out of it. So they pray for the Samaritan believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, 14 to 17. We had the story, this kind of weird story of Simon's attempt to buy apostolic power, 8, 18 to 24. And then look at verse 25, kind of a summary statement. And then we'll get to our passage we're looking at today. A summary statement. This is after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many Samaritan villagers. So they go back to that area. And then we have here in verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip. Now if you read the, the Old Testament, which I like to say Tanakh. You know that word Tanakh? But you have to do this little guttural at the end. Just don't spit on the person in front of you because they wouldn't appreciate having like spittle on their back of their head. So Tanakh. And that's a word for the, the Old Testament, the, you know, the Hebrew scriptures. I like older Testament better than old. Old, older, older Testament compared to the New Testament. So we have here uh, the angel of the Lord used many times in the Hebrew scriptures. And you see him uh, appearing to wrestling with Jacob, had a wrestling match. You see him appearing to Hagar. You see him appearing to many, many, many people, to, uh, to Gideon. And uh, quite often, I think in the Old Testament, the Older Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the angel of the Lord is Jesus pre-incarnate, which is a fancy word for before he became a man. So the angel of the Lord said to Philip, now when we're doing evangelism, one key thing, and I'll develop this later, we need to be obedient. Be obedient. Even though it, doesn't, even though it seems like, like, why, Lord, you asked me to do this? Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, maybe, on the surface, but we need to be obedient to what he's telling us in whatever way he chooses to do that. So he says, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, there's a couple ways to go from Jerusalem to Gaza. You can go along the coast. There's another way of going. not sure how he went. doesn't really matter. But there's not a lot of Dunkin' Donuts or places to get coffee. This is a very hot place. And he's, he's with a lot of people, fairly, you know, a lot of people becoming believers. And then the Lord tells them, go to this desolate, out-of-the-way place. And if he's, if, if he's honest, he's probably thinking, what in the world? Like, why would I want to do that? But does he obey? 
Good for him. So he obeys. So he starts out, and on his way, he, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So now you have in your notes here, the gospel spread to the Samaritans, and then now it spreads even further. Because remember Acts 1.8? Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you, you throw a rock in the lake, kind of see these circles that go around from it. Con- what's that called? Concentric. Uh, someone said it. What, what it. You know what it's called. I can't think of what it's called. Amen. Yeah, amen. So we have this uh, kind of going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the... And that's what we have here with this uh, him going to this Ethiopian eunuch and the Great Commission, obeying the Great Commission. Now, in Judaism, this Ethiopian, you see in your notes, would have been limited to the court of the Gentiles at the temple or the synagogue. Now, if he was reading Isaiah, now the Isaiah scroll, I would have brought, I have an exact copy of the Isaiah, the Dead Sea Scrolls Isaiah scroll. I bought it in Jerusalem in the 80s. I don't know if you can still do it today, but it's an exact copy. And it's, it's like not, you don't turn to 53. And it's not easy to read these things. There's not breaks between the, the words sometimes. They're all like scrunched together. And you're just kind of rolling, unrolling. We're talking about 24 feet long. So if you start out here, the edge of this speaker right there, one, So that's how long the scroll is, give you an idea. So you don't turn to 53. It's one, the verses, the verse breaks, chapter breaks, add it later on. So if you're preaching, you wouldn't say, like Pastor Keith wouldn't say, turn to 50, Isaiah 53 too. It wasn't, it just one, they had to know it pretty well. So he's just reading this. And if you got to chapter 56 of Isaiah, he would have seen that Isaiah promises in the future eunuchs and foreigners full blessings in the future. So he would have gotten to that point. Now, did he buy this in Jerusalem? If he did, when he was there worshiping, that would have been pretty expensive. So he has the, he's a man of means, and I don't know how he would have done that, but not everybody, like we have a Bible now. You, you, we take for granted that we have like 10, I have probably 15 Bibles at home. Many parts of the world, they have to share. In fact, they tear it in half or in thirds. They share Bibles. Back then, not many people would have had access to a scroll like this. So he's a man of means. And we have this uh, person just sitting there, and he's reading out. And uh, he's on his way home, it says, in verse 28, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Now, if there's a lot of evidence here. This encounter was clearly foreordained by God. You see that in verse 26? And you see it at the end, 39. So it's interesting that in this, this section, it's like an envelope. At the beginning and toward the end, it's in and the middle, it's very clear that God is directing this entire thing. And you see this many, many times in Acts. In fact, the involvement of angels... And the life of the early believers is remarkable. You see it in chapter 5, 10, 
and you can read these later on on your own. And also you can read these verses about how active the Holy Spirit was in these evangelistic encounters. Also, God directed events and missions through dreams and visions. Actually, a few places they got out of prison. Can you imagine being in prison and then a few minutes from now, then you're sitting there sleeping and the angel comes and tells you to get out and just some really interesting things happening here. And by the way, as a, this is a free side comment, God is using visions and dreams right now to bring a lot of Muslim people to the Lord. So that's happening more all the time. And that's going to increase because during the tribulation, the tribulation, seven years, I don't think we're going to be involved in that. I think the rapture happens before then. But in the future seven-year tribulation, capital T, you're going to see more visions, more dreams. That's in Joel chapter 2, the last paragraph of Joel chapter 2. But let's keep going. So we have God directly involved through the Holy Spirit, and he's directing Philip. So he's on his way home, sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. So back then, people didn't read silently. They read aloud. So he's reading aloud this. And uh, what's probably here, this is an ox-drawn covered wagon. So have you ever seen an ox? How, did they move quickly? Boom, boom, boom. You know, they're really slow. And they're not, it's not talking about a, a horse here that goes quicker. So it's not too hard for Philip to catch up. And he's probably on the way there, he could have been thinking, as I said before, like, why in the world am I going to all these people I'm witnessing to? Now I'm going out in the boonies, out in the really hot place. Well, he's going to find out when he gets there uh, the impact that this little visit is going to have on him. So he's sitting there reading, and the spirit, see the spirit involved again? So the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So if you read back in the, when they chose these people that were probably at deacons, acting like deacons, they were full of the Holy Spirit. They were, you know, they, they listened. They would pay attention to what God told them. So he's just being consistent with the way he was before. So then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading. So again, he's reading aloud from this uh, scripture. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? Now, I've witnessed to many Jewish people since the 80s, since the mid-80s when I started to do it, when I was in Israel, went to graduate school there. And most of them, a lot of the Jewish people, or many of them, intelligence, way higher intelligence than I'll ever have, way more intelligent. But you can be talking to some of them, and they just don't get it. Their, their blinders are on. We, we heard that up there, there's a veil, there's a veil. Number one, there's a veil. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that their unbelievers are blinded. I think it's 2 Timothy 2, I didn't look this up, 2, 26, that Paul talks about unbelievers are held captive by Satan to do his will. He's talking about false teachers there, but they're held captive. And John 6 says that no man or woman comes to the Father unless the, unless the Spirit draws him. Acts 16, you have Paul speaking to Lydia by the, by, the, by the river. And remember, the Lord opened her heart. So three things need to happen here. The Lord needs to open the person's heart. All these would be synonyms. Open their heart, unblind their eyes, take the veil off. They're in prison spiritually. They need to be taken out. So 
God needs to sovereignly work on the person's heart, number one. Number two, the message needs to be preached or or spoken to. And then third, the person needs to respond, which is faith alone, faith alone. So that's what you have. All these three need to come together at the same time. And that's what happens here. So he's reading aloud, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? So we're not talking about you understand the words. Because unbelievers can understand the words, but the implication and really we're talking about a little deeper, higher level. So they need God to help them, and God is going to help them through Philip, his servant, who's, as we saw, is just, even though he's doing things that are kind of weird, like why am I doing this? He's submitting to God and the Spirit and doing what he's supposed to be doing. And then he says, well, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. Interesting that an unbeliever has that kind of understanding. They says, well, I can't understand it. I need you to explain it to me. So he's thinking, great, this is like a great opportunity. So he, so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the, in the chariot. So this is a passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. So he just so happened to be reading this passage. Now, so happened, I'm going to put in quotes. Remember Ruth 2? where Ruth decides to follow Naomi back to the land, and, she, and Naomi tries to get her not to follow her, no, no, go back home, and no, but she's determined, she sticks to her like glue. And then she goes out, and she gleans at a field. Now, back then, it would have been like one massive field with maybe a stone separating where the, where the separation is. You wouldn't have seen it from the distance. And she did so happen, Ruth too says, that Ruth just so happened so happened from man's perspective not God's perspective it's ordained right she just so happened to come to the field that belonged to to Boaz just so happened no it's not just so happened God is foreordaining so is he just so happened to be reading Isaiah 53 no he wasn't just so this is just all God planning this entire orchestrating this entire thing what he read is and he's reading them from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is a Greek translation done in the 3rd, 2nd century B.C., a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. You see it sometimes written LXX, Roman numerals for 70. So this is the Septuagint. And he said he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Verse 33, Acts 8.33. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And we know what the trials are like, right? Remember that from the Gospels? During the middle of the night, basically completely unjust. It was illegal the way they, many, many aspects of Jesus' six trials, three religious, three civil, were totally illegal. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. In fact, Isaiah 53 describes that he's going to see his descendants and prolong his days. Question for you. I ask Jewish people this a lot. And you're, going to, you're going to hear me talking. I'm going to talk about asking questions. I ask a ton of questions. One question I ask is Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. Now, the Jewish people today say that that Isaiah 53 is Israel. But they do it because the ancient rabbis, long time ago, all of them, before about 1000 A.D., they believed that that was the Messiah, not Israel. 
Because how can a question then, if, like if you said to me, if Rick said to me, oh, that's, that's Israel, I'd say, well, Rick, okay, that's, I'm curious now to know something. If it's Israel, did Israel ever die? And you would say, no, they've gone through all this Holocaust, all these things, no, they never died. Okay, now I'm even more confused. Because Isaiah 53 says this person who it's speaking of, and he's going to ask later on, who is he speaking of? He was cut off from the land of the living. And what does that mean? I think it means he died. How do you know that? Keep reading Isaiah 53 because it says he's buried. Now, I wouldn't want to be buried. That's just me, though. I mean, you might have a different opinion. But personally, I wouldn't want to be buried unless I'm dead, right? I don't want to be buried alive. You've seen enough movies. <laughs> I've seen that. But, you know, so you know he's dead because he's buried. So, but how, how, if you're dead and buried, how do you see your, prolong your days and see your descendants? Through the resurrection. Remember Isaiah wrote this 700 years, 700 B.C. Jewish people say B.C.E., before the common era. We say before Christ. I like B.C. better. So, uh, so 700 years before. So that's a passage he's reading. And it talks of his death. It speaks of his resurrection. Remember, in the Old Testament, in the Older Testament, there's two pictures of the Messiah. There's, there's his uh, suffering person and a glorious person coming glory, both. But in the first century, they were focused more on the one that would come in glory. We know that's the same person, don't we? Because you can understand, if you're under dominion of Rome, wouldn't you want someone to come and release you from that? So you're not as focused on a suffering servant. You're more f- focused on you know, someone coming in glory. So he explains it to him. He says in 34, who's he speaking of in 34? And then 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news. What's implied there? Began. He probably went to other passages. Peter does it in Acts 2. Peter is talking about Joel too. No, we're not drunk. This is what Joel was speaking of, and uh, so this. But, but and then he then he he goes to Psalm 16, which is a prediction that David predicts the Messiah Jesus resurrection, and all these other passages. Jesus did that. The two men walking to Emmaus, and Jesus is speaking with them, and he went through the entire Older Testament and talked about himself. Now we love to heard. Jesus' little mini-chorus in Messianic Prophecy. I don't know what he said. Of course, all of us would love to hear that. Someday we will in heaven. And then he's baptized later on. Now, I want to talk about a lot of very practical tips. Now, the one thing we see is method. So we use, uh, you see this on the bottom of page one of your notes. We see a, a personal approach to evangelism. Now, in Acts 2, how many is Peter speaking to? Thousands, right? Here we have one-on-one. And Isaiah and Philip uses 53, 7, and 8 as a point of departure, as a jumping point for a conversation. Philip asks a question, and then Ethiopian eunuch asks a counter question. So this is a cross-cultural event, isn't it? Philip, simple Hellenistic Jew, sent to preach the gospel to a wealthy African. And one commentator said, simple Christians can share Christ with people who are different from them by simply loving them and by being humble and sensitive to their needs. 
And he uses Septuagint. Now, if you into these things, like I am, you can compare the Hebrew with the Greek and see there's a number of differences. Now, Philip doesn't argue with him about, well, there's some problems with what you're reading. No. He uses what he was reading, and he uses that as a departure to, it's not appropriate when you're witnessing someone to say, well, there's some differences between the ESV and the NIV, and no, that, like TMI, TMI, too much information, stick to Jesus, stick to the gospel, don't get involved in a lot of things that shouldn't be mentioned. So this makes Bible translation a very important tool for missions. So uh, he didn't make corrections to his translation and all that. So we can learn from this that the Bible should be, we should use the text we're using, unless it's a New World Translation, which is heretical, which is a JW, Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. Unless you're using that, then you can use the translation they're using. And he witnessed to the Ethiopian, and then he was taken away. Now, God, God would send others to disciple him. Now, you see Paul spending years, in some cases, building people up. In fact, first missionary journey, visits all these people, Asia Minor. Second missionary journey, he says, let's go back and visit to see whether they're doing okay. And he visits the same places, builds them up. Well, God does that. There's not like a formula. Here, Philip witnesses this guy, and then the Spirit takes him away, and God is going to send somebody else later on to... Uh, uh, to help them. Now, the message. Now, you know the word contextualization? Anyone heard that word before? Contextualization. It's the middle of your, your page two. So due to cultural circumstances and differences, we may tweak our approach. But our basic message does not change. Philip Paul regularly practiced contextualization. He never changed the basic content of the gospel but he did adapt its communications to the particular culture of that audience. Sometime compare John 3, Jesus speaking to the Nicodemus, with John 4. We could, we could we can mention like 50 examples, but just one. John 3 with the woman at the well. Now, is his approach slightly different? Not slightly different, radically different. Is the message the same? Oh, yeah, it's the same. So we can learn a lot from that in our witnessing. Now, six reasons. Now, I, I get afraid to share the gospel. Let me give you some reasons why I get afraid. Maybe it'll help you. Number, reason number one, it's only by God's power people are saved. Knowing, do you know how much pressure that takes? That takes a lot of pressure. What if I mess up? I mess up every time I speak. Now, I don't care anymore. I'm not I don't care. I just don't, I don't stress over it. You guys speak since the 80s and you just learn not to, because it's not, if, if I'm stressed too much about that, oh, I just made a mistake when I witnessed somebody. That, you know that's pride on my part? It is. I had too much pride then. I'm focusing too much on what I'm doing. You sh- we, I need to focus more on what the Lord is doing. So that takes a lot of pressure off of this. Number two, even Jesus was rejected. We had a guy in, in Toronto called Beth and I evil. He said, you're evil, evil, evil people spreading lies. And he said, oh, thank you. <laughs> that's what he said. We, 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 that's going to happen. But he didn't, he didn't stone us. He didn't. could have been worse, right? If you read Voice of Martyrs. So Jesus was rejected. It's about pleasing the audience of one. 
It's about pleasing the audience of one. He's the only one that counts. It's about faithfulness and not results. Now, I like to make a distinction between true fruit and apparent fruit. What do I mean by that? On the surface, we might not see too much fruit. Now, this is different than when Jesus talks about by their fruits. In Matthew 7, he's talking about false teachers. How do you know a false teacher? Read Matthew 7. You know them by their fruit. So that's Matthew 7. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to few will find. That's false teaching. But here we're talking about when you're witnessing somebody, you might work on for years. As far as you know, you might not see any fruit. Is that the true fruit? No. We won't know until we get to heaven. Maybe then the Lord will tell you, remember that one person you witnessed to and they spit on you? Do you know that one month later they became a believer and then a thousand people became believers through that person indirectly? So we don't know. So don't get frustrated. And if you do have a lot of fruit, don't get too proud because the Lord gets all the glory. When we're rejected, we're promised heavenly rewards. We have people say to us, you know, spit on us, or we, we say thank you for that. Uh, you spit on me? Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You know why? You just gave me a blessing. Do you know that? You just gave me a blessing. Because it says when you're rejected, that we're blessed. So it's all good. Wipe it off. Remember that. Please, please remember that. That is all good. And the Lord will give you the right words to say. So that could cause some fear. I don't know what to say. Well, everything you've ever read is in your brain permanently. So the Lord can bring it up and he can help you. Our job is to plant seeds or water the soil, but God takes care of the growth. And God has promised he will be with us when we're sharing. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but I please read the second page. It's not very long. It's about how to use questions to do evangelism. And I'm using my favorite, one of my favorite TV characters, Peter Falk, played Detective Columbo. You young people are not going to know what this is. Parents, take your children home. Show them some of these Columbo programs during the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I uh, died recently, but uh, he, he was a great one to ask questions. Use questions when you're doing outreach because you're in control you're in control, and people are happy that you're asking them questions. You care, and it's a genuine question. You really want to know the answer to what they said. And then when I say evangelism, look at the third page. Please read this too on your own. When I say evangelism, some of you might think, well, street evangelism. There's many, many, many ways to do evangelism. These are the ways that we've done it, and a lot of these are in the book of Acts. So Find one of these that you would kind of jive with you, and there's maybe one or two of these ways that you can use. You might think, well, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing street evangelism. That's okay. Read all the other ways on page three. Now, there might be somebody here that's not a believer. Well, before I say that, we have these bookmarks, the table backstairs. Please uh, come back and uh, uh, speak to us if you have any questions. And come to our table. We have resources to help you share the gospel with Jewish people. And we're praying for Lakewood. We're looking forward to working there when we come. This is the bookmark that we get. This is what the guy what made the guy mad that one day. In fact, he tore it up across the street and he screamed at our colleague. Then he walked across the street and then he yelled at us. And then and then he walked away. You know, he it's okay. But that's what he was mad at. This 
And we, we also give this. This is a bookmark. Reminds you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. By the way, do you know what you're doing in effect when you're praying for the peace of Jerusalem? You're praying for Jesus. Yeah, you, what you said is correct. I think I heard what you said. End time. That there'd be no peace the way I, I biblically define it until the Prince of Peace comes. When the Prince of Peace comes, there'll be peace. So if you're praying for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122.6, you're in effect, you're praying for Jesus to come back. So I wrote Maranatha by Psalm 122.6. So take one of these. And if, if you've been invited by somebody and you're not even sure what I'm talking about, you're not a believer, please do not leave here today. You don't know when your last day is. I need to quit here in a second. But it's 1146. It's possible, and I'm a very positive person. I'm not a negative person by, by nature. But it's possible that you could, you could uh, depart from this earth in one minute. One minute. And you would never, never see anyone here again. So if you're not sure where you're going after you die, if I ask you the question, do you know for sure that why, sh- why should God let you in heaven? If you say, well, I'm a fairly good person. People in the prison say that. And we say... Don't take this the wrong way, but you're in prison. Well, but I didn't murder anybody. That guy over there, he murdered three people. I just, you know. Anyway, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, if you can honestly say, I'm going to be in heaven because I place my faith in Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, who died and rose again, and you place your faith in him, and that's why I'm in heaven. And there's an exchange that happened. This is a great exchange, I think. I give him my sin. He takes my sin from me, past, present, and future. In return, he gives me his righteousness. Isn't that a great trade-off? We're going to trade. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. And then we have Dr. Lewis Ferry Schaefer, the founder of Dow Seminary, writes out 33 blessings that we have in his believers. Ephesians 1, 4, we've been blessed with three. We've been blessed with every, there's like 33 of them that we can enjoy immediately. Now, if that's the answer you're giving, okay, you're going to be in heaven. If, if that's not the answer, please place your faith in Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to walk the aisle, raise your hand, pray a prayer. You, you can pray a prayer, but you're not saved that way. You're saved by placing your faith in Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for dying for us. I know personally I do not deserve to be in heaven for eternity. I'm really glad that you did what you did and you sacrificed so much. You were thinking of all of us when you were on that cross uh, being beaten and being crucified. You were thinking of us. So we're, we're very grateful to you that through our faith in you, that we can be in heaven someday for all eternity. We know we were headed in a much worse place. Lord, give us out of love for you from our hearts. We're so grateful what you did for us. Lord, help us to have a heart just full of love that would result in us just naturally from that love that we would naturally want to witness to as many people as possible. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to do it. Uh, We're reminded of all these different styles of evangelism. Pray that people here would just... uh, figure out which style would be the best for them, and we would all just trust in your spirit to, uh, as we witness to people and we're dependent upon you to open their hearts. Please do that. Please do that for Lakewood. 
Lord, use this sign that we're that the church is putting out. Uh, I mean, by the reservoir, I believe that that would touch uh, Jewish people, and they would say, "Whoa, we're used to being persecuted. We're not used to churches loving on us." So use that to bring people into heaven. We want to see heaven populated, and uh, where we all we all said in your name, Amen. Thank you again.